This is Behind the Breakthrough, the podcast all about groundbreaking medical research and the people behind it at Toronto's University Health Network, Canada's largest research and teaching hospital. I'm your host, Christian Cote, and joining us today, Dr. Ralph DaCosta, award-winning scientist at UHN's Princess Margaret Cancer Centre and Tech Institute. Dr. DaCosta invented a first-of-its-kind handheld device that is revolutionizing how we image and treat cancer. Welcome, Dr. DaCosta. Thank you, Christian. What a pleasure to be here uh, and share our story with you and, and the rest of your audience. I really look forward to this conversation. Well, thank you. And to that end, your story, what I find fascinating about this invention is it starts really with a serendipitous moment, right? Back in 2007, you're a grad student in the final stages of a PhD on cancer imaging. And what happens? Well, uh, boy, that's a long time ago, but, but you're right. I was a graduate student in the Department of Medical Biophysics in the University of Toronto. My supervisor at the time, who remains a really trusted mentor and and friend till today, is Dr. Brian Wilson, who is actually on staff at the Princess Margaret as a senior scientist. And around 2005 to 2007, we started to interact with a number of clinicians at the uh, St. Michael's Hospital, in particular what the clinicians in our imaging, cancer imaging team were trying to develop were new technological ways or new imaging ways of identifying patients with early cancer. And so the researchers, including myself and the clinicians, started a really amazing collaboration, which still goes on till today. And what we were after in that time period was capitalizing or exploiting some of the robust technological capabilities using light or light-based technologies. And loosely speaking, that box of optical tools is referred to as biophotonics. So uh, or it's back, called which? It's called biophotonics, okay. biology and photonics. So photonics is gotcha. another word. All right, thank you. So the idea was, is there a way to help clinicians appreciate these subtle differences in these very dangerous and early cancers from surrounding tissues? And eventually the goal there was to try to make that part of the standard of care. So we wanted to give the, the clinicians a, a better way of visualizing cancer. This was a fairly sophisticated enterprise. In other words, we weren't just in the bench using microscopes and endoscopes in the research lab. We were actually taking our original prototypes and moving them into first-in-human trials. And so this was a very rapid time for me to learn not only how to do research at the bench side, but also interact uh, with clinicians on a day-to-day basis. And, and I really think, you know, looking back, that was a, a fundamental uh, change that happened to me as a grad student that a lot of the research that I was doing had a very direct connection, not only to patients, but also to doctors and the medical system. But anyway, getting back to what happened next, part of that work that I did back at the Princess Margaret involved some, I would say, fairly sophisticated animal models. And so in order to understand what we were seeing in our clinical trial with actual patients, one of my uh, main goals in my PhD thesis was to develop animal models and study how the fluorescence imaging, so we were uh, in particular looking at fluorescence uh, as a way to enhance the, the differences between these early states of disease and normal tissue. We developed a method where we would use fluorescence. It was essentially a way of illuminating the tissue inside the patient with a specific wavelength of light and then allowing the imaging sensor with a number of different optical elements in front of it to filter out all of the, you could maybe think of it as useless fluorescence information, and really capture that very important diagnostic information that would help us appreciate the pre-malignant from the healthy tissue. 
And so we were seeing some tremendous success in the first number of patients, but the questions uh, really sort of circle back to the research lab. What was causing this sort of beneficial clinical uh, outcome? Why were these particular wavelengths of light so uh, useful and others not? And was there a way to better understand these things in, in an animal model system so that we could maybe fine tune what was happening on the instrumentation. Again, the goal here was really to help clinicians to see things that they were currently missing. So what happened next around 2007 was, uh, together with some veterinary colleagues, we created an animal model. It was an animal model that allowed us to recapitulate what was actually happening in patients. And we did that through some sophisticated surgical procedures. And when we had this animal model, we essentially miniaturized the optics that we would be using in patients so that we replicated what we were doing in the clinic back home at the Princess Margaret Optics Lab. And that was really interesting because normally we take things from the bench to the bedside, but here's a good example where we were already at the bedside and we needed to understand and we came back to the bench. So that was a very interesting experience. So as part of that exercise, this was, as you refer to it, the serendipitous moment and I was looking through the binoculars uh, to this animal that was sitting there under anesthesia, trying to understand what was happening. And I saw the early signs of cancer that we were seeing in the clinic. So I was very excited, obviously. Uh, and I saw the same color that we were seeing in the clinic on this animal model. So that gave me some confidence that the animal model was actually working. That was a good first start. And as I probed in, under the microscope, and, you know, there's lots of lasers and bells and whistles, and it's fairly complicated to operate under lighting conditions. So I was sort of fumbling around with some dials. And I just moved my eyes away from the binoculars for a moment and uh, came back. And I guess I had shifted the animal. So this is sort of true serendipity. So what I saw unexpectedly was a, was a very bright color of red through the binoculars of this very complicated microscope. And I think what had happened, as I mentioned, the animal may have shifted inadvertently and the microscope was pointing out uh, a different area. And while I saw what I had expected to see as the color of cancer, the fluorescent greenish color of cancer, was uh, in stark contrast to this bright red color, which I was not expecting to see. So I really wanted to understand what this strange red light was inside the animal. So I investigated a little bit and I thought, you know, what we do normally when we're dealing with tissues is we will often take a sample of that tissue. And in this case, I took a small biopsy of the animal and I moved the animal around to see if I, another biopsy was needed. And I quickly noticed that there was another red spot and another red spot. And I turned on the lights and looked at what I would normally see just with the unaided eye. And I realized that those red spots were occurring in a very particular pattern that matched a surgical suturing that I had done in the animal. So the first thing I thought was, well, that's kind of bizarre. And, and they were just like little round circles around the suture sites, right? Just where I had done my surgical uh, work earlier in the animal. And so I thought, well, that's kind of bizarre, unexpected. So I sent the biopsies off to a friend of mine uh, who was at Mount Sinai in pathology, and he happened to be on call that night. And I said, well, could you run this through your panel and, and tell me, are they cancer cells? And he called me up and he said, um, you don't have any cancer there. And, and I said, well, what do you think it is? He said, well, I, I tested it for bacteria. And I said, what led you to think that? He says, well, you described them as being around the suture sites and it is the gut. So it's not surprising that you'd see bacteria. And maybe they were congregating around the suture sites, just like you said. And, and sure enough, he, uh, he confirmed that it was bacteria. It struck me that 
boy, that's something we've never seen before. And if that's also happening in patients where there's also a lot of gut bacteria, could that possibly interfere with the way our fluorescence endoscopes are working? Could it even be a, a way to optically differentiate bacteria, which are not cancer, from, from the cancer? And so I thought, ah, what does any grad student do when you know, you're faced with an interesting discovery? Well, you send it to your supervisor and say, look what I found. Right? And that, that wasn't very different from my thinking at the time. And I snapped a picture and I looked at it and the screen wasn't so great, but I thought, oh, geez, that's a pretty interesting picture. Put my camera away. You know, I was pretty exhausted through at four o'clock in the morning. I thought, well, I better get home. So I started walking home. And as I'm walking home, it's about 15 minute walk. And I thought, well, well, that's interesting. We've just shown that fluorescence can identify bacteria, not just cancer. So I sort of tucked that in the back of my mind. And then, you know, just a few feet away from my front door, I thought, wait a second. I just took the, a picture of fluorescent bacteria and the image quality was magnificent, even though it was early technology. And I did it with a cell phone. Yeah, with your BlackBerry. That's right. And I thought, well, I could maybe turn a cell phone into a microscope. Right. So that's where it all happened. It, it sort of came out of cancer imaging, a very strong clinical focus on improving early detection in, in our GI patients. And that night I realized it's interesting, but you know, what do I do with it? Like, what, what does it actually mean? Then I started to dig and dig. And uh, you know, while I was finishing up my PhD, I, I learned a lot. I learned a lot about wound care because I was asking myself, obviously, where would this kind of a finding be useful right, mm -hmm. in medicine? So in terms of your investigation, what was the state of imaging for wound care patients back in 2007? The more I read, the more people I spoke to, clinicians, nurses, people who, who worked in, in long-term care facilities, I basically just started to call everybody because it started to dawn on me that as I, as I read more of the literature and had these conversations with frontline workers in wound care, the one thing I came away with back then, and I still think is true today, is that uh, chronic wounds and the care of patients with chronic wounds globally really can be considered a silent epidemic. And what really got me was the best people could do when it came to understanding the role of bacteria in how wounds go from a, a contaminated state to a truly clinically infected state was that the standard of care, and, and by the way, this is still true today, and, and this is really, you know, what, why I think the innovation we, the team has come up with really has, um, has the potential to change the standard of care. Because if you look at chronic wound care, not just in Canada, not just in North America, but around the world, there are essentially two ways that doctors rely on on a day-to-day -day basis. And again, this is a very large population of patients uh, who have these chronic wounds. They essentially rely on visualizing the, the patient, taking a history, and then looking at very subjective signs and symptoms that they would use collectively uh, to make a, essentially a guess, is this wound infected or not? Now, there are some wounds that are very obvious. They, they smell, they're very warm to the touch, they look terrible, you can see the bone, etc. And so those, those are patients where an infection is almost likely to be there. And, and then the, you know, the next decision that they have to make at the front line in real time is, do, do you prescribe antibiotics or do you clean? Or in the worst case, do you, do you amputate, right? Which mm. is not good. But the other way uh, in terms of actually quantifying the amount of bacteria in these wounds, I came to learn, it was a simple swabbing technique. So you'd swab the center of the wound. And this becomes a challenge because the results from a culture lab usually take you know, several days to come back. 
And so if a clinician, a nurse, for example, is, is doing an assessment in real time, and you know, there's a waiting room filled with other patients, you really have a very short amount of time to make your diagnosis, determine your treatment plan, and deliver the treatment. And so waiting a few days for you know, confirmation that you've got an infection vis-a-vis -vis the, the culture test isn't really practical and it's very costly. And so I realized, boy, is there such a tremendous impact on patients around the world from a personal standpoint, a quality of life standpoint. I know I spent years, my vacation days while I was finishing up my graduate work, trailing around uh, nurses and doctors, just learning about the problem for myself. And I'll tell you one thing, and I say this very respectfully, these patients are dealing with such, such a, an enormous emotional burden. And that you know, translates into a poor quality of life, higher risk of mortality, et cetera. And just from a human perspective, uh, it struck me that in the absence of innovation in wound care, these patients might continue to go down that path. Now, what's interesting is I think the field of technology has also realized uh, what I realized in 2007. So a number of people, number of companies really chasing this idea of helping clinicians improve the state of modern wound care. But back in the day, there was no such thing as optical imaging uh, per se, fluorescence imaging in wound care. We've changed that now in 2020. So you essentially had a better mousetrap that could identify wounds and confirm the, the, there was bacteria or infection on the spot. That's right. And one thing that I sort of left out my mistake is you'll appreciate that without any tools or without a, some sort of an imaging capability or some way of visualizing the bacteria, remember bacteria under the standard of care with the naked eye are invisible to the eye, right? You can see them when they grow in cultured dish, dishes because they've multiplied from one to a billion but in a complex wound where you have pus, blood, you know, connective tissues, all sorts of things, they're sort of hidden. And yet they are still wreaking havoc against the, the patient, the host's uh, immune system. And so, you know, one could think, well, Ralph, what, what would be the benefit of having an, an imaging instrument, a device that could be used at the point of care in real time to visualize these otherwise invisible bacteria when you've got culture tests that are based on swabbing? Well, you really can't tell where the bacteria are. And these wounds can be very deep. They can be very amorphous, if you will. They're not little circles, you know, that you can point to the center and know what's happening around. So, you know, in a nutshell, Christian, what we realized was the, the ability to actually take an image in real time and do it within less than a second and show exactly where the bacteria are in terms of the spatial organization or presence and also show, you know, how does that bacterial population change as a function of a treatment, antibiotic or debridement or other such uh, methods. So being able to see the bacteria was a game changer. So describe this for us, Rob. What does this device look like that you're taking a picture with of a wound to determine, you know, if, it, if it's actually infected uh, in terms of bacteria? Right. So that's a great question. So let, let me, before I answer that, briefly tell you how we create a fluorescence picture. So for fluorescence to occur, it needs to be in the dark because it's all about creating uh, or exciting molecules that are present in a, in a particular target, in this case, uh, the wound, and being interested to differentiate between the different fluorescent colors. So bacteria may appear red, connective tissue may appear green or yellow, and other components of this complicated wound could appear with different colors. So the, the goal here is to make those bacteria and their fluorescent signals stand out amongst everything else. So to do that, you can appreciate that if you're doing that in sunlight where you have a whole 
range of different uh, optical wavelengths contaminating your background, it makes that very challenging. So we start off by having a dark environment. And that's not challenging clinically. You can always turn off the, the clinic room lights to take this fluorescence picture. The next thing you need is the light that causes the fluorescence to be excited. In this case, we use a narrow wavelength of light in the violet range. So this is not ultraviolet light. This is 405 nanometer light. And we block that light from being detected by the imaging sensor. So the light hits the wound, illuminates everything. And we have a sensor which is built into your cell phone, just the regular one you take a picture of, you know, your daughter or son at a birthday party. That same sensor is sensitive to those emission wavelengths. But we don't want to see all the different colors. So we've selected green and red bands using an optical filter that sits in front of the sensor. And all of this is constructed in a way that fits onto or essentially attaches to what would otherwise be an interactive cell phone communication device. So you've a got light source as well that will light up the red or right. green. That's right. Wow. So you've got you've all got, built in. You've got all, it all built in and it fits in the palm of your hands and uh, you can control it with the software that we've developed. And so you can turn on the blue light and instantly without any need for any kind of a spray or a contrast agent or an injected contrast agent, you get the results immediately. And so what you end up seeing on the color screen of this device is a real-time fluorescence image that identifies the presence and distribution of the bacteria against the, uh, the rest of the wound. And what the clinician then instantly appreciates is the relative abundance of the bacteria and where is the bacteria. And if they prod or you know, surgically remove some dead tissue, we found that it's very helpful in identifying underlying infections, which would not normally be seen. And these are just a few examples. But in a nutshell, what this translated to in the early days, and of course, we've come a long way since 2009 in those, those first um, Health Canada trials, is that if you can have a device that can fit in either the palm of the hand or, or the pocket of a, of, a, of a lab or a clinical apron, uh, lab coat, as they say, you have something that's portable, you can use it just like you would use a stethoscope. So, you know, today we sort of refer to the Moleculite device, the, the company's device, which is now sold all over the world as the sort of stethoscope of wound care. You can carry it anywhere, you can pull it out when you need it, and you get more information that when it's combined with the standard of care, you know, all of those other signs and symptoms, the physician has a higher confidence of knowing about the presence or absence of an infection. This sounds like a device that could be creating a paradigm shift in wound care, treatment, diagnosis, etc. The device, I think, is a paradigm shift, mainly because it has uh, so profoundly over the last number of years addressed a very important unmet need, and that's the need to have real-time information about bacterial burden. Because as we've appreciated over the years, clinicians have been guessing a lot about whether, you know, what's happening with the bacterial part of the host bacterial uh, tug of war, as, as it were. You know, when a patient has a wound, if we're healthy and we have no underlying conditions, it's our immune system that protects us from that infection once those bacteria contaminate the wound. But, you know, as you know, many patients have underlying comorbidities, their immune systems are compromised. And so that initial exposure to these dangerous pathogens can go unchecked and all of a sudden the bacteria end up more or less winning the war against the patient and that's when you you know you run into a lot of trouble the other thing to think about in terms of the unmet need is to think of the scope of the problem uh, not only the human cost of, of chronic wounds but the other 
area that we really have to look at, not only as, as scientists and clinicians, but as policymakers and governments, is the massive cost of treating for this chronic condition across, say, North America. As I recall from recent Medicare and Medicaid statistics, it's about $80 billion US to treat patients who have chronic wounds. And patients who have diabetes have, uh, the last time I looked at this was maybe you know, several months ago, a 25% chance of developing an infection resulting in a diabetic foot ulcer that remains chronic, it doesn't heal. Uh, and you know, with the increasing uh, sorry, aging population, I should say, we're, you know, even if you're conservative Christian and you're estimating a 10% increase in diabetic foot ulcers, knowing that diabetic foot ulcers are not the only type of chronic wound, you're looking at increases that are, as I said, in the billions of dollars per year, you know, and that's just in the United States, so extrapolate that across the world. So not only is there a patient cost, a human cost, but the cost to the healthcare system, especially at a time when resources have to be really managed uh, in a lot better, this also helps to address that. The evidence we have from a large number of multinational, multi-center trials, FDA trials, have really demonstrated that um, it's an effective technology for what it's intended for. And we've had very, very positive reviews across all of the different doctors using it around the world. So we're very encouraged and uh, enthusiastic of where we are today. And you don't stop there. You go back to your primary research, which is cancer imaging. How have you been able to apply the molecular invention to cancer imaging or adapt it? Right. Well, you know, you're right. And an area that became very interesting to me, uh, partly related to, you know, my my, uh, member of my family, my grandmother, Martha, had developed breast cancer. And I thought, well, boy, if we can, you know, do what we did way back with Dr. Marcon's team at St. Mike's and look at endoscopy, is there a way to take the same kind of technique and adapt it so that we could address a very important problem that affects a lot of patients at Princess Margaret? So patients with invasive cancer, in this case, breast cancer, will often undergo what's referred to as a breast conserving surgery. Uh, In breast conserving surgery, uh, we have to appreciate that a certain percentage of time, despite the best surgical practice and guidance documents, patients will often have cancer remaining after that index procedure, that first procedure. And, you know, sadly, around 20 to 25% of the time, on average in North America, a patient has to come back for another operation. So early on, I made a decision in the lab that we should really pick one cancer and really adapt the technology, Christian. And we sat down and we sort of said, hey, is it possible to take this fluorescence technology and make it so that it works in the operating room in real time? And we could use it, at least theoretically, to identify the sort of missed cancer, right? And uh, I can tell you, we finished a 75-patient trial In fact, we recently uh, finished recruiting the last patient and we've just submitted our uh, phase two clinical trial results to a journal and we're just waiting for it uh, to undergo uh, final reviews. And the results were absolutely positive and dramatic. So what we found in women who are undergoing breast conserving surgery, that if you administered the safe, uh, we refer to it as ALA, aminolenic acid. This is the contrast agent. That's right. And just for, you know, completeness of the story, the agent actually doesn't fluoresce, which is really great because if you drink it and it goes everywhere, you don't want to see the agent, you want to see the tumor cells. And so it's the tumor cells that convert this non-fluorescent ALA into a, a molecule, in this case, porphyrin, that does produce this bright red signal. And so this is how the fluorescence contrast is achieved. 
And what we found just in the first patient was the primary excision has been completed and we're seeing tiny spots of fluorescence, which then, you know, on pathology, uh, this was work led by Dr. Susan Doan, one of our great collaborators at Princess Margaret, the evidence started to build that, gosh, what we're seeing are actually tumor cells. And so what made us very enthusiastic in this phase two trial, which was Health Canada approved, it gave us a foundation by which we could write more grants. And so, you know, we were very successful with writing some very large peer-reviewed research grants. I remember CIHR was a very large funder of what now has become a multi-center, multinational FDA pivotal phase three trial, which is now currently underway. So a phase three trial now underway uh, in terms of testing the imaging device with the agent to be able to pinpoint where cancer may still exist in, in terms of breast cancer. What's your sense of what's, what's coming after that trial? In a nutshell, you know, not to be coy about this, but I really have always dreamt about using this kind of fluorescence technology to take that 20 to 25% re-excision rate and squash it down to zero eventually. In terms of what's coming next, I would say that the breast cancer FDA phase three trial is probably going to last us about two years in order for us to complete this very large number of patients. And we've been working very intimately with Health Canada and the FDA uh, to make sure that it's, it's a success. In terms of our pipeline, we've got first in human studies planned with our head and neck surgeons. Uh, we've got a very strong interest in developing another application in gynecological cancers, uh, another one in looking at lung cancer. And so we're very excited. These are very expensive trials, as you can appreciate. A lot of the funding uh, support we've received has come up to this point from funding organizations like CIHR and the Breast uh, Cancer Foundation. But we can't do that alone. You know, it's just not sustainable. And so I find that working together with industry and commercializing these technologies, which UHN is very good at, really helps accelerate the movement of these concepts uh, closer to trials and, and therefore into adoption. So, boy, I'll tell you, it's been a roller coaster ride. It uh, sounds like it. What advice would you give people in terms of the notion of raising financing or commercialization? I mean, you took all this on your own. There was an urgency to it because, you know, if we really wanted to get this technology out into the marketplace, we had to act quickly. And so there really wasn't, you know, time for Ralph to go and get an MBA uh, at U of T, Rotman. Um, so it was really learning on the fly. As I reflect back, it was probably the most important lesson or lessons that I learned above and beyond what I was doing in my regular career in research. And what I mean by that was I had literally zero experience on what it meant to be an entrepreneur. I'd seen other success stories, many of whom came out of UHN. But really what I struggled with in the early days was, oh my God, what have I taken on? And I must say that one of the most important decisions I had to make early on, once I knew that the evidence supported this as a real technology that could have some commercial implications, and this is really something that I often highlight to my colleagues who come to me, it's the following. It's when you're in a research institute and you make a discovery, big or small, you have to really ask yourself, what are the implications for the discovery? And it could be a discovery based on a, on a new drug or a new therapy or a new device uh, or a new method or something like that. First of all, can you patent it? Can the institution patent it? Can you actually protect it? That's very important. And it's important for, for several reasons, one of which is if you can't protect it, someone will copy it 
And so the value, the, and I hate to say the word value, but the, the financial value is, is, is uh, diminutized. The other thing you have to think about is what's the best that you can do to get this discovery into society in the future? And often we struggle, including myself in the early days, you struggle with this question. Let's assume you've, you've got a patent around it. Is this something that we should license out to, to a company that's bigger and is well-funded and can hit the ground running? Or is it something that is so new that who would be that company to take it over, right? And in which case, what do you do? You have an invention, it's protected. You work very closely with the tech transfer office. And you know, obviously there's lots of guidance uh, that I received from that office. And then I started to talk to people who'd been there and done that, some of whom are remain mentors to me today. And the decision I made was to create a company. And that really was the pivot point for me in my life because licensing it is a fairly straightforward procedure. You take the technology, you know, you put it out there in a company, Olympus, you know, we, UHN deals with lots of companies in the imaging device space. They could have easily taken it on. But what we thought in consultation with Mark Taylor and his, and his office was it probably made a lot more sense to create a company. And of course, the commercialization process at UHN has evolved since 2010-11 when I was first starting thinking about this. But to me, that was the big question I had to ask myself in order to know what I want to do. And by agreeing that I wanted, number one, to learn what it meant to be an entrepreneur, I also wanted to largely be involved in the translation. There was a, I hate to say it, selfishness. I spent all this time thinking about it. I know so much about the area. Uh, if we hand it off to, a, to another company, you know, I, I was a, a bit afraid that it might sit there and language. And at the time, people kept telling me, Ralph, you're so motivated. You're so inspired by this. You know, why don't you take the risk? So what I would say to people who might be listening, who find themselves in, in the same kind of situation as I did in those early years, it's one of the most important decisions you can make alongside with UHN's tech transfer and others is, are you willing to commit to participating in a commercialization pathway that is about spinning off a company? And I chose to do that. You're listening to Behind the Breakthrough, the podcast all about groundbreaking medical research and the people behind it at Toronto's University Health Network, Canada's largest research and teaching hospital. I'm your host, Christian Cote, and we're speaking with Dr. Ralph DaCosta, award-winning scientist at the Princess Margaret Cancer Centre and a pioneer in cancer imaging. Dr. DaCosta's work is supported in part by the Princess Margaret Cancer Foundation. Now, Ralph, we like to explore with each of our researchers their origin story. What turned them on to science? And I, I understand for you, it involves actually watching the Terry Fox Marathon back in, in 1980. Talk to us about that. Yeah, <clears throat> well, you know, it takes me way back, 1980. Um, I could see him uh, with this entourage of these very old police cars, right? And the spinning red, single red lights. They don't look like that anymore today. And I, I, I was about to flip the channel and I thought, wait a second, what, what's this all about? And it was the Marathon of Hope. And I could see him in these vignettes over the course of the year. News coverage would be in Nova Scotia and Prince Edward Island. He'd be in Toronto. He'd you know, be in Sudbury. And, and as he made his way through the country, I would tune in to watch these, you know, and my parents were like, well, you just saw it. What do you want to see it for? It's because I started to understand the real cost of cancer. 
for the first time as a, as a young person. And I didn't really understand anything about cancer. This was at a time when I was thinking about university and you know, what did I want to do? And uh, I would think, although I can't say definitively, it really helped me think through my future career. And, and I really started to understand that I wanted to do something to help him. Here's the really interesting thing. The Terry Fox Foundation was so invaluable to my own lab. Uh, it was still very early in my career as a scientist at Princess Margaret. And uh, I remember getting a letter in the mail and I found out that I received the Terry Fox Research Foundation's new innovator grant. It's half a million dollars, you know, and I like immediately went back to 1980 and watching Terry Fox and to sort of come full circle with that Terry Fox story is a very personally meaningful uh, experience. And we've done a tremendous amount with that money. It's terrific. You're born in Dar es Salaam, Tanzania. And your parents emigrated to Canada when you're just six, resettling in Toronto. And, and they essentially just start over, which must have taken you know, great courage on their part. How does that experience shape you today? Coming to Canada uh, represented for my parents a really big shift. And as you put it, a big risk, and, and it did take a tremendous amount of courage. I learned that it's really important to be focused. And it's really important to remember that, as they say, no person is an island. My parents really sort of taught my siblings and I to really work together. And, and so that was not new to me. They also shared with us some of the trials and tribulations as parents coming to a new country with us. They didn't make it sort of a, a you know, a tiresome complaint story. I mean, it was more like, gosh, you remember when we had to leave all our furniture behind and and look, we've, we've, you know, I think it was Ikea furniture way back in the day. <laughs> uh, you know, it's these lessons where you work together as a family to better yourselves as new Canadians. And, you know, my mom got a job really quickly and my dad uh, also got a job very quickly and, and they became contributing members to Canadian society. And we saw that work ethic, that idea of, well, there's no time to complain about it. Let's just get out there and, and start working on improving the lives of, uh, of our family. How do you inspire possibility in your lab with your people? There's no one answer to this, I must say, Christian. But in my experience, I think a good leader helps to create better leaders, right? And I, I don't know, I think I read that somewhere a long time ago. It sort of stuck with me. Helping people learn from my mistakes. I hope you and your audience can tell I'm a very open person uh, about these kinds of things. I try to say, look, this is my experience and here's where I did well and here's where I think I could have done better. And can you learn from that? I don't see myself as their lab boss. I see myself as just one person in the team that does research. Obviously the buck stops at my door for institutional reasons. I do enjoy being a, a leader of a lab and contributing to, to science, in particular in cancer imaging. But I think to answer your question in one way, even though it is a one phrase uh, response, it's the following, that I want to be the leader who helps to make better future leaders. And, and I think that's it. What's your approach to mentorship today? In terms of mentorship, I don't always look at myself as the only mentor to my team because I'm not the panacea of how to do things right. My experience is, I would say, fairly narrow, to be quite blunt about it. It's a fairly narrow experience. And there are others in and around who I encourage my own lab uh, mates, my trainees, to really interact with. What we try to do, in, at least in my lab, is share experiences. And I can only share mine. 
and then encourage people to look beyond, right? And if you want to be an academics professor, don't just take my word for it. Go and talk to Brian Wilson, a name that we spoke about earlier. Go and talk to uh, Brad Waters or go and talk to Marianne Korczynski or, or others. I mean, there's, a, there's a, an entire team of people whose experience, you know, either individually or, or in concert, could really help my trainees. But in terms of mentorship, I have another area that I find very uh, passionate, uh, which is to encourage young people to really get excited about science. We started a program many years ago called the Summer Discovery of Science Program. So that grew and grew and grew. And then eventually the model we developed over years, Christian, then um, helped to inform a more formal model that the clinician side of Princess Margaret started inside the Princess Margaret Cancer Center. So now we became a node. Uh, I think you know they learned from what we had done and the mistakes we made. And today it's running as a fully functional student volunteer program, the effort is to bring kids into cancer research early. As young as high school, the more we do, the higher chance we have for that long-term goal of research being successful, because at some point, many of us are going to retire or, or change careers, but this next generation of these cancer fighters uh, is very important. What's your advice then to these young students who aspire to enter the field? My message to them would be it's really okay to dream big. And it's really important that you dream big. And it's also okay to make a decision to try something and change in the future. I mean, that's the benefit of time is that, you know, you have time in the future to try a different career. And one of the things I always emphasize to my students, and I'm sure a lot of scientists do that, or a lot of mentors do this as well, is, you know, I'm 51 years old. And you know, it's taken me a long time to get to where I am. And I've made a heck of a lot of mistakes. But you know that old saying, Christian, that if I only knew back then what I knew now, that's never been lost on me. And these days, as part of my mentorship, at least in so far as I can do it, I try to remind students that one of the things that they have on their side when they start looking at their careers is they have time on their side and that there is time to change and evolve. And, you know, it's rare when you find someone with one idea as a, as a young person for a career, and they end up becoming that only thing in the future. Society today and the way the internet is and the exposure young people get to a diversity of different careers, I think there's a shift. Young people are understanding that there are a lot of different roles that are complementary that they can fulfill and really help society become better. And the earlier we teach young people, at least in my humble opinion, that it's like compound interest, right? You, you start really early and the benefits in the long term, even if you switch careers, may, may have profound effects in, in society globally. I'm just wondering, does this ever turn off? I mean, is this 24-7, this work for you? Uh, <laughs> I want to help society. I found a great place to try to, you know, use my skills, uh, if you can call them that, to, towards a, a, a bigger end, which is to conquer cancer. And, you know, Princess Margaret in particular, it's in my DNA, it's in all of our DNA. I really believe it. There's a saying from an author named Simon Sinek that goes, people don't buy what you do, they buy why you do it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Why do you do what you do, Ralph? It sort of goes back to that question you asked me earlier about my family and what things happened to me at an early time uh, that shaped who I am today. I mean, if you look at the career I've chosen, Christian, you know, it's obviously a career where... I'm passionate about science and technology and all of that. But I think, you know, before I meet my maker, as they say, I really want 
to use the life that I was given to help people. It's just, that's the simplest way to put it. That want to help people who are suffering has come from my mom, my dad, my sisters who are very passionate and compassionate people. I mean, it's such a fulfilling thing. And I can look back in my career and I've still got many years to go, hopefully. I can say that I've been able to help people improve their lives, not only in cancer, but here, you know, in wound care and in other medical areas. So it's one of those pay it forward kind of things. And finally, what's, what's next? What's on the near horizon for you? It's a busy time. Uh, it's going to be busy for a number of years to come. I want to see these things through to fruition on the cancer research side. I think, you know, having industry support is, is obviously very helpful to accelerate these longer term goals and maybe pulling them up closer to near time. What's next? Look, with, with my skills in research and learning the lessons I've learned and trying to make myself a better scientist overall, trying to make future leaders in Canada, what I think is I've settled on what I want to be when I grow up. I want to be a, a scientist who focuses on medical problems in cancer that I see can be translated to society and are scalable, will help as many people as possible, and at the same time, leave the world in a, in a better place. And uh, yeah, I, I think that's the t-shirt I'm wearing today. Well, Dr. Ralph DaCosta, award-winning scientist at UHN's Princess Margaret Cancer Center and Techna Institute. Thank you for sharing your breakthrough with us and continued success. Christian, thank you for the opportunity to share this story with uh, you and uh, your listeners. I really appreciate it. Dr. DaCosta's research is made possible in part thanks to generous donor support. If you'd like to contribute to this groundbreaking medical research, please go to www.thepmcf.ca and click on the Donate Now button. For more on the podcast, go to our website, www.behindthebreakthrough.ca and let us know what you think. We'd love to hear from you. That's a wrap for this edition of Behind the Breakthrough the podcast all about groundbreaking medical research and the people behind it at the University Health Network in Toronto, Canada's largest research and teaching hospital. I'm your host, Christian Cote. Thanks for listening. <laughs>